0: Welcome back, everyone. I'm here today with Stephen Lawson, who is an author and a military veteran, but also uh, currently serving in the National Guard.
1: Hello. Stephen, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Now, <laughs> tell me a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Uh, how did you come to fly helicopters?
1: Okay, so I'm in my 20th year of military service now. Um Right out of high school, I spent uh, five years enlisted in the Navy, I was stationed on an aircraft carrier, Um, I did three deployments with them, Uh, started out uh, Allied Force, and then I did, um, right after 9-11, we got deployed uh, for the immediate response for uh, Operation Enduring Freedom. Um, And then I got out uh, right after the deployment for Iraqi Freedom. Got out, decided to go to college. So I spent four years doing undergrad at uh, Asbury University in uh, Wilmore, Kentucky. Um, Got kind of bored of being a civilian, worked a couple odd jobs, and then um, joined the National Guard. Uh, One of my brother's friends actually hooked me up with an interview for uh, flight school with the guy that was the brigade commander at the time. Uh, So I went down to Fort Rucker, um, got my wings, came back, and I've been flying ever since. so I enjoy it. It's fun. It's a it's a good spot for me. So
0: now how did you get into the writing gig?
1: Okay, so um I've kind of been a writer a little bit, I guess I'd say my whole life. Um, like in high school, we had this extracurricular activity called Power of the Pens, like a creative writing thing. So I did that for a while and did some uh creative writing competitions and did pretty well at that. And then, um, I wrote a little bit in the Navy, you know, just, um, it wasn't anything very good. It's, it's stuff that would never see the light of day. And then I got out of flight school. I'm like, you know, my gears were turning and stories were popping into my head. So, um, I just started researching like where, where I could send my work and just, um, you know, sent stuff out to a few places, got into some, uh, semi-pro and amateur contest wins. And then, um, I found Writers of the Future online and decided to enter that, and that's where I met you uh, at the, the Writers of the Future um, workshop. Uh, it took me two tries. First one was an honorable mention, um, and I, I think I published that story somewhere else. And then the second time up, I got third place and I think, the second quarter uh, with Moonlight One, and uh, I actually had a lot of stuff published in, in 2017. I published, like, five stories that year. Um with with different venues like Daily Science Fiction and Galaxy's Edge and Um let's see, Jim Bain Memorial Short Story Award. I got second place and uh what's the other one? There's one more I'm not thinking. Oh I IGMS, which is uh kind of defunct now, but you can access the stories online for free. Um so I got some urban fantasy into that one with a story about a dragon trying to find his pet human. So that was fun. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where I got into pro writing with short stories. Um, I published a few things since then, been in some anthologies and best of kind of stuff. Um, and then, uh, I guess worked my way up to where I had enough credibility that, uh, Tony would, um, buy an anthology from me. So that's where we are.
0: Uh, so what do you, or what sorts of stories do you tend to write?
1: Um, I write everything and I guess that's just part of my personality is I get bored very easily. So, um, I'll write one thing and be like, I don't want to work in this genre anymore. And some other story will pop into my head. And I've, I've written like detective fiction, which my, my story for writers of the future is kind of like a locked room mystery. This, um, this couple is stationed by themselves on this moon base and then one of them wakes up and the other one's dead. So who, who killed him? Um, so I like uh, a little bit of a mystery kind of thing. I like science fiction, um, when the ideas come to me about like space colonies, which those are my two stories for the Jim Bain Memorial short story award, um, for 2017 and 2018. Uh, one was a colony on Mars and one's a colony on Titan, the moon of Saturn. Um, and just dealing with problems like, um, cancer from, uh, uh, cosmic radiation in the the 2017 one and then um dealing with a kid that's trapped in underground ventilation tunnels and the poisonous gases on Titan and how do you save a kid like that um in those circumstances so and that one gets into robotics and communication and stuff like that too um i write some fantasy i write some out there weird fantasy um especially like during 2020 when everybody's kind of locked up i started writing stranger and stranger things about um you know, just people being trapped in uh kind of claustrophobic situations just because I had <laughs> that feeling. So I just put it into some writing and the stories worked out okay. Um Galaxy's Edge just bought one of those not too long ago. Um and uh I, I just actually self-published a a novel not too long ago. It's been a few months. It's called Walk Away, but that is um it's like Christian science fantasy kind of thing. I've got this this guy who's um he's from this like sinless, uh, inherently immortal race. And, um, they, they see it as their, their duty to go out and and send one emissary out into the universe to help other, other races that are dealing with problems. Um, and I, I, I think I'm the most proud of that work. Um, it's called walk away and you can find it on Amazon. It's, it's up for sale there, but I like it. There's a lot of me in that story. So, um, but I run the gamut. I write horror, fantasy, science fiction, detective fiction, all kinds of things. It's just whatever's in my head. I guess I write.
0: Are there any particular themes that you return to over and over again?
1: Um, thematically, I I think I do the best, um, and it's not even plot wise. I mean, obviously, I'm writing some stuff about like space colonies and things like that because I like thinking about how you would deal with with a unique environment. Um but I do I deal with some emotional angles more than I think maybe other male writers do at least um I I get into like uh romantic dysfunction uh fairly often and people's lives just sort of falling apart and their minds getting crumbly and dealing with the the relational aspects of of things that don't turn out so great and that was that was kind of um like the Moonlight One story from Rivers of the Future, that was, um, I use songs for inspiration too. I'll go down that rabbit hole. So if if you've ever heard Jim Croce's Operator, um, that kind of inspired that song, Moonlight One. And it's it's a guy lamenting this lost love and, um, you know, how he feels about this girl and all that stuff. And that's, that kind of fed into that. The, the story that I put into the Robo Soldiers um, anthology, I guess you could say it was inspired by the killer, Mr. Brightside, because it's this guy just kind of going down this downward spiral because of things that are going on with him emotionally because of this girl. So it's like a, it's a dysfunctional love triangle kind of a story. Um, But it's also got little robots and military stuff and, you know, all the cool futuristic stuff. But I guess, I guess I start there. Um, I I start with the relational angle that I want to tackle Um, and then I start layering other things on top of it, like the plot, like, okay, would this, what would this guy do for this girl that he can't be with? Would he, uh, would he give up stuff to, um, to be with her or to save her husband? If she's, if he's in trouble or something like how much is he willing to give up of himself to, to help her and make her happy? Um, so I guess those are the, those are the themes that I explore the most um is the emotional aspect of the main character and then honestly for me the the tactical and science and all that stuff is kind of secondary to it. So
0: who would you say have had the major or the biggest influences on your writing?
1: Um so that, that depends on the on the writing project. Um I would say like my science fiction space colony stuff uh that's probably a, a, a Robert Heinlein um i would say for like the christian space fantasy thing i i love c.s lewis's uh space trilogy if you if you're familiar with that um and i actually borrowed some elements from out of the silent planet and kind of turned them around on themselves um to to build that world um so c.s lewis robert Heinlein. I like a lot of the dark aspects of the Pendergast series, which is, you know, you can pick those up anywhere. They're like a bestseller, um, kind of formulaic formulaic, um, fiction by uh, Douglas Preston Lincoln Child. Uh, I I haven't read the last few that kind of went on this, um, this arc with Pendergast that I didn't really like. But a lot of the earlier stuff where it's just straight up gothic horror, I enjoyed quite a bit um michael Crichton, i love i've written i i read everything by um by michael Crichton um that i could get my hands on i love his stuff um let's see who else um i think that's it for, probably for major influences but i i read all over the all over the spectrum like um I picked up Matt Walker's book. It's a nonfiction book and he's a sleep scientist. Um, and it's uh it's called Why Do We Sleep? Um, and it's about uh, you know, healthy sleep patterns and dreaming and things like that. And I I got down into some some of the weeds with that and just started turning the gears in my head. And I I wrote a couple of stories that were based on uh this guy basically um, infiltrating this dream world. Um, and then he gets fatal familial insomnia. So he's going to die in about six months if he doesn't figure out a way to, um, to regain his ability to sleep and dream. Um, so I, I get inspiration from nonfiction stuff too. Honestly, um, I just read something on science and I'll just start my gears turning and I'll be like, I want to write about that. So I do.
0: Now you mentioned earlier about pitching your anthology, Robo Soldiers to Tony Weisskopf at Bain Books how did that come about? So how, where did the idea come from? And from that point, when did you pitch and how did the pitch go? And was there any back and forth? Let's talk, talk the audience through that process.
1: Okay. So the, if you want to get into my mental process, um, some things just come to me as a joke. And then I just work with the joke because I've just got a weird, like sense of humor that is like, plays on words just like puns pop into my mind dad jokes and things like that so the title uh was originally uh thank you for your Servos." it's a subtitle now uh tony wanted to put robo soldiers on it so it's robo soldiers thank you for your Servos." um and i thought about writing this story or maybe it was going to be a novella or maybe a novel i didn't know where it was going but i started writing this thing and, and drafting this thing where there's a um uh washed out um combat uh, robot and he's he's been purchased and uh basically demilled uh for for sale to this really rich family and he's basically a plaything for this little girl and this little girl uh one of her friends goes missing, so they go on this rescue mission um and they they kind of bond and um you get through some of the robots uh combat experience and stuff like that and i you know I'd go driving or running or whatever And I thought about the idea more I'm like there's a lot more to this idea if you get veterans to write about their um their specialties and maybe put some of their experiences into the future of robotics um because this this doesn't have to be a story about just one robot or one artificial intelligence this this can be you know all domains of warfare it can be um space cyber land sea air um you can put all of those in there um, and get more bang for the buck with a title like that. So um, that's where the idea for the anthology came about. Um, I definitely knew that um, military science fiction is something that Bane does. I pitched a couple other things to Tony in the past, and then um, you were nice enough to um, share your um, your pitch process with me. So I used that and contacted Tony. She said she liked it and um, sent me a contract not long, long after that.
0: Now in putting together this anthology, what were some of the challenges that you had to wrestle with?
1: Um, so I did have, I had kind of a weight, like it stalled. And that's, you know, once again, something you're responsible for is um, <laughs> kind of kicking me to keep the thing going because um, I was, I contacted a few of of what being considered A-list authors and, um, You know, I had other other writers that were interested, but I needed a big enough name to put on the cover. And so I went through a few people and most of them weren't interested. And um, David Drake was nice enough to step in and uh, say, yeah, I'll put my name on this project. And, you know, with the the list of the other authors that I had, uh, Doug Beeson actually joined after that on the project. Um, And I had Martin and, and some other people. And so I gave Tony my list of names and she said, yeah, this will work. Let's do it.
0: Any other challenges in putting together the project?
1: In um, putting it together, I wouldn't say challenges. It's really labor intensive um, because I get a little bit OCD about the quality of of what I'm doing because I I care about my reputation. You know, I don't want to I don't want to deliver something that's substandard. So I've probably read every story in the anthology ten times. I've had my computer read it to me. Um, and then with copy edits i've gone back and re-edited and re-edited again and you know it just um i I get to the point where um i i get a little bit i I don't want to say sick of looking at it but it's just um my brain starts to shut down a little bit now if i look at any of the stories in there, like i can't look at the work anymore like i love the anthology i think it's a great anthology but i've looked at it so many times that um it's uh i can't look at it anymore so well, get
0: ready, because once you start promoting it, you're going to have to start talking about it over and over and over and over and over, and over again. i am doing yeah. the same thing with the Weird World War IV anthology, and it's been out for two months, three yeah. months. So, yeah, just get, get used to that. Yeah. In terms of some of the stories, can you comment on any of the stories without giving too much away?
1: Um, I would say for overall content, for people that are watching your your um, your show, uh, it turned out a little bit darker than I anticipated. Um, I, I was kind of going with a dad joke of a title, and then I started reading some of the stories. Um, Mona Lisa gets a little dark. Your story got a little darker than I expected, but you're a horror writer. I should have expected it. And then uh, Weston Osha's story definitely gets into some grisly dark material. Um, there are a couple of lighthearted stories in there. Um, mt wrighton uh his story is the first in the anthology and his is um i'd say it's pg pg-13 ish um great story about a team up between this uh this young lieutenant uh female lieutenant and her combat robot nco that uh they've been sent to a communications outpost um and there's a lot of playful humor in that one. There's a lot of playful humor in the last story in the anthology, which is um, Operation Meltwater by Philip Kramer. Um, and I, I I love both of those stories tremendously. Um, there's a lot of uh, deep strategy and things like that in Philip Cornell's, um The Rules of the Game, and he gets into, like, AI processes and how to defeat an AI and what a war bet- between not really a war but a conflict over taiwan with um china what it would look like and how the u.s might be able to help um and i love the strategy and the deep thought that he put into that um there are a few they're more just straight up gunfights um uh, tc mccarthy's handyman it, he gets into kind of like the the cyborgs on the moon um he's got a lunar warfare story but it's also a good old country boy kind of story um, going to try to help out his friend. Um, yeah, it, it really runs the gamut. I mean, you get lighthearted humor and you get really dark, um, horrific material in there. So um, I think anybody that picks it up could find something that they would like. But I definitely wouldn't let your kids pick it up off the shelf unattended either. So, um, yeah, it's. I I think it's got a pretty broad spectrum of things to that would appeal to anyone.
0: Now, what other uh, things that you've written should readers check out?
1: Um, I guess it's asking, what do I like the best um, out of what I've written? Um, I've got, so I've got a collection of my short stories that's available on Amazon. It's called leaders taste better and other stories. And the cover art, um, is from that story, the 2017, 2017 story, uh, from IGMS, uh, called leaders taste better. And it's about a dragon. Um, and he can, he can disguise himself as a human if he wants to, he just shapeshifts and pulls part of himself out of our reality. And he, he looks like a man. Um, but he's decided that he likes the taste of leaders the best because they have less cortisol in their system because of a a reduced stress response. So he likes eating people in leadership positions better. Um, so it gets into some biochemistry too. Uh, and then he goes on this rescue mission, but that's got all,
0: let me stop you there. Why do leaders have less cortisol?
1: So, um, Oh, I need to think of her name, but I, I mentioned at the beginning of that story, but there's a Ted talk. Uh, by this lady that talks about um she's talking about biochemistry, so like in primates, when a primate is basically chosen for an alpha position um he will get more testosterone in the system, it reduces his cortisol and his stress response so if you see people that are natural leaders they're usually calm cool and collected that's not just that's not just temperament it's um right. it's it's a primate biochemistry. When you're placed in leadership positions, your body will reduce your stress responses to things. As long as you're, you know, you see yourself as fit for that leadership position, or the primate sees himself as fit for that leadership position, your your body's automatically going to increase your testosterone or reduce your cortisol for your stress response. So if you've ever eaten meat that has from a stressed out animal, it's not going to taste as good. So this dragon has decided. He likes the taste of leaders better because they have less of a stress response, um, so their meat isn't tainted by stress chemicals. Um, so that's where I got the logic for that one.
0: That actually explains a lot. Um, that's why <laughs> being in a leadership position is like 50 times less stressful than having to report to somebody, at least for me. Like, yeah. It's not even close.
1: Oh, uh, and I'm drawing a blank right now because it's been so long since I watched it, but it is a really good um, TED Talk. And she talks about like interview tips and stuff like that and how to reduce your stress in interviews and body language and all kinds of stuff. But I, I watched it and I was like, hey, there's a story right there. It's What Would she uh, say?
0: Take control of the interview, basically?
1: Um, not take control of the interview, no. Um, she's talking about um, expansive body language. And I've seen it on other shows um, where people are doing these like wild, crazy, expansive gestures like, you know, you're the biggest bird in the yard or whatever. Um, and just how you sit instead of being leaned over forward and your arms crossed and shielding yourself, you know, you're, you're laid back with your hands behind your head and your feet kicked back. Um, it's just relaxed, um, body language will make you relaxed basically. Um, so she talks a lot about that kind of stuff. It's, it's basically you telling your body what to do and your body telling your brain what to do in the, in the process.
0: What about people reacting to that? sort of response i'll be honest with you like if i go into a room and somebody's doing this kind of crap it increases yeah. my level of aggression
1: because <laughs> you want to be the alpha male there you go um yeah so yeah i mean those those are um and not not a, a lot of people I, I shouldn't say not a lot of people i think we're we instinctively pick up on nonverbal language like that but um i don't think enough people analyze it on a conscious level how it that's it's emotional intelligence, it's emotional awareness, it's it's understanding just by somebody's facial gestures how your body language is affecting them. So if I if I see that I'm kicked back like that and Sean Hazlitt comes into the room and I just see this angry look on his face because he wants to be an alpha male, um, raw, I'm Sean Hazlitt, and I want to be in charge. Um, I don't know. I could adapt my body language to you and maybe get along better and work something out. So um I try not to be you know, a total butthole about things. I don't want to let people walk on me either. But I I generally go for a cooperative atmosphere. So if I feel like um if I feel like people are shutting down or something like that because of my body language or I'm too aggressive or, you know, I'm withdrawn too much or something like that. Um I like reading and, and watching videos about body language and stuff. So I'll try to adapt, you know, how I'm coming across uh to make other people more comfortable around me and I I try to create a win-win atmosphere most of the time, honestly. Yeah, like my
0: my gut reaction to that is I see as a sign of disrespect or a sign that somebody thinks they're better than me.
1: Yeah. So which is, yeah, which, which, which
0: fits fits into exactly what you were saying.
1: Yeah, and right. I I think we're just wired differently. I think, um, and I, I know you've been in the corporate world a lot, um, and I, I realize I'm not wired like other people, but um, mm-hmm. uh, I think. The, there's another TED talk by I watch a lot of TED talks. There's another TED talk by Adam Grant where he talks about um, givers, takers, and matchers in the corporate environment. Um, I would say I'm a, I'm a giver. Like I want people to be happy, and I'm usually willing to sacrifice to make other people happy. I'd say you're a matcher. You want people to be on an even kill. Given that's take. right.
0: I'm I'm like I am like the purest possible matcher, and and I can smell takers, and yeah. I get very aggressive around them.
1: Yeah, I I sometimes I just avoid them, sometimes I confront them directly, takers. It just depends on how damaged Oh, I get.
0: seek them out and I make them uncomfortable. Like I will deliberately make them uncomfortable because I like I despise them. Yeah. But god, I want to hear more about what a taker is even though I had a, such a strong opinion and you didn't even define it.
1: Yeah. No, I mean it's I mean I think the terms are pretty easily um self-evident, but the taker is is your compensating sociopath your your narcissist who just wants to take 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 from other people and is harmful to the team environment
0: Um,
1: but they they have to compensate because in any team environment there are going to be social norms that are going to punish that kind of behavior um so either either they adapt and they make it less evident of the narcissistic sociopath or they they incur penalties from the group because of that so Adam Grant talks about if you're in a leadership position, um, protecting your your givers because givers are going to do the most good for the group. Um, maybe helping them be better matchers um, so that they don't get taken advantage of or whatever. Um, but
0: they burn out the fastest, though, right?
1: Oh yeah, I mean if if you don't have a if you have a match, uh, not a matcher, but a giver without boundaries, um, if they. So obviously, takers have to have compensating behaviors so they're they're not noticed and shunned by the group. But givers have to have compensating behaviors so they don't get taken advantage of too. Um, so as long as that as long as that giver knows how to make boundaries, and as long as the group is not trying to take advantage of them, they won't get burned out. But if you have the narcissistic sociopath with compensating behaviors, that's all of a sudden the CEO of your company because that happens sometimes. Then sometimes. yes. Then you're going to burn your givers out, um, and you're going to end up um, harming the team environment. Um, so, yeah, I I agree with Adam Grant on a lot of things. I I read his posts and and watch his TED talks and stuff. And um, yeah, I, I've gotten a lot out of the stuff. I I definitely peg myself as a giver. Maybe sometimes I'm a matcher, but I don't think I've ever been a taker a day in my life. So, yeah.
0: what's the relative frequency? of those sorts of types in an organization are they evenly balanced or is there sort of a
1: um and it's been a while since i've watched that one too but um he i think most people are matchers um and i i'm mixing it in with some other personality types like people that wait to be told what to do versus people that do exactly the right thing in a disaster and people that do exactly the wrong thing and die um i I know the the majority, like the majority under that bell curve are going to be the matchers. That's most people. And then you have those minorities on either end that are narcissistic sociopath takers and then the um, bend over backwards sacrificial givers. Um, so I I don't have a uh, percentage memorized, but um, it's one of Adam Grant's things. It's not hard to find if you look at Ted.
0: Yeah. So, sorry to take us on a little bit of a diversion, oh. but I thought it was interesting.
1: No, yeah, we're going down a rabbit hole. It's interesting to me too
0: so if you know what what sorts of projects are you working on right now? Um,
1: I'm working on some personal projects, like I say, it's my twentieth year in the military um writing wise not a lot. um I've gone through some changes in the last couple of years, I guess um, you know, just lifestyle wise and mentally, and things like that. I like flying, so um I always you know, jump on any flights that interest me, like, you know, I I don't want to get into all our operational stuff. But um, I, I guess that's, that's another different thing. in how I'm wired is I'm not, um, and you, you and I have talked about this, but I, a lot of people are wired by what's going to pay the most. And I work with people like that, um, in multiple environments, and I'm not really wired that way. Like, I'm wired to help people, I need to feel like I'm, I'm benefiting other people in some way that rewards me emotionally. And I like to do things that are fun. So, um, if it was the choice between making 30 grand a year and doing something where I was really helping people, as long as I could keep food on the table or working in an office and making a million bucks a year, I'd take the 30 grand a year job. So, um, money, I, I don't know. My life is, um, I guess I've been blessed, but, um, I don't. Yeah, w-
0: working working in a corporate environment will knock that attitude right out of your head.
1: <laughs> I wouldn't work in a corporate environment, so yeah. um, it's I I I select I select occupations, and I've got a few skill sets. I mean, I've got options, but I select occupational environments where I feel valued, where I feel like I'm helping other people, and where I'm you know honestly enjoying the work. So, I mean, that's how I got into flying. I mean. Circling back and going down a rabbit hole, my uh, my granddad was a pilot, um, and I mentioned that in the um, editor's introduction for no, actually the dedication for Robo Soldiers. Um, he was an Air Force pilot, and he flew for Eastern Airlines. But he taught me and my brother how to um, fly a Cessna one seventy, which he owned when I was in like third grade. So, I've been flying most of my life. Um, We'd stop, 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 stop.
0: You, he taught you how to fly a plane when you were eight years old
1: yeah yeah it took me and my brother up and um yeah we were flying the Cessna 170 um and he taught me how to do you know shallow turns steep turns all that stuff we didn't like go inverted or anything like that but um
0: you didn't, you, didn't, you didn't do landings either did you
1: I didn't do takeoffs or landing uh okay. I, I was okay. he backed me on the controls for a takeoff a couple times uh when I was a A wee lad um but landings no i didn't do landings until uh much later in life because i've taken some private airplane lessons too i've got gotten up to soloing but honestly um and this probably won't make sense unless people watching your show are pilots but i like helicopters airplanes are okay but i don't like what airplanes can do as much as i like what helicopters can do Um, i like being able to come to a hover and set down anywhere I want to. I like being able to make a vertical climb and put somebody on a rope or whatever, which I've done a few times. Um, I like I like the maneuverability of helicopters and getting getting in an airplane after you've been a helicopter pilot almost feels like a handicap to me. Um, yeah. It's like why won't this thing come to a hover unless I've got a uh, unless I've got a headwind strong enough to keep me to hover at three thousand feet or whatever, which I've done too. I've hovered an airplane. Um, so that is possible as long as you got enough headwind.
0: I did not know airplanes could hover, but I can, I can see what you mean. I, I took uh, Cessna lessons a long time ago and I got to the landing stage. The flying yeah. part is pretty flying, navigating pretty easy stuff. Landings. Not, not fun, not
1: fun. It's a little different a tail dragger though. Um, you know, cause you don't want to like, come Down too hard on the tail, but um, you want to tail dragger, which is what I learned on first. You want to settle the front gear first and then set the tail down, nose down, round out flare for uh, tricycle gear. You want to touch the um, the two wheels first and then land the front of the plane, um, or close to a three point landing. But um, like the Blackhawks, a tail dragger too, um, but we land that differently. If you do a roll on landing, you're going to hit the tail wheel first and then settle down the front gear. Um, so it's just depends on the airframe
0: are there any other things that you'd want the audience to know about you that i didn't ask you
1: anything else i want the audience to know about me um i talked about walk away that's probably my favorite project that i've done writing ever um it's the only novel i've successfully gotten through because most novels i i start plotting and then i start writing them in the Ideas just get too weird in my head, but walk away with just start to finish. This makes sense to me, and this is what I want to write. Um, but no, um, I think I think for Robo Soldiers, um, I tried to put. I don't want to say this. I put a lot of real experiences and kind of put them in this blender and made them unrecognizable to anybody and then put them into the story that I wrote nightingale um and it's about a helicopter pilot whose mind is getting a little bit crumbly um, so I, I enjoyed writing that it was um it was a fun journey to write um, but yeah, I think if people pick up ro- Robo Soldiers, they're going to see um, a lot of the real world experience that comes into each of the, the military writers and um, in, in the things that they write about, that they chose to write about, um, based on their experience. So I think- Now,
0: wh- when does Robo Soldiers come out and where can people find it? Uh,
1: it comes out June 7th. It uh, should be in all major bookstores. Uh, they can find it at Bain.com or Amazon.com if they do their shopping online. Uh, I believe the purchase price is $18. I don't have that in front of me. Um, but yeah, major booksellers, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, um, Amazon. Uh, but obviously, go to Bain first because they're the publisher. So, um, But if you like Amazon, it's out, it's out there on Amazon also.
0: All right. Well, thank you, my friend. Thank you for spending time on my show. I appreciate it. Make sure you know, everyone in the audience should go out and pre-order Robo Soldiers today so that it can reach your inbox by June 7th. And uh, you know, thanks again, Stephen. Thanks, Sean. If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time.